Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Examined Athlete. My name is Clay Reichenbach. This week's episode is all about baseball. If you're a baseball fan or a parent of a baseball player or a softball player, this episode is certainly for you. Our guests today are Bobby Bramhall and Nate Headley. Bobby and Nate have co-authored a brand new book that's out now called Who's On First? Everything a Baseball Parent Needs to Know. This is a baseball how-to manual for parents or coaches, mentors, or even athletes themselves. What the book does is it lays out in detail how to navigate the game of baseball, starting from t-ball and going all the way up through pro ball with some great anecdotes from coaches and professional ball players, first round draft picks, college stars, you name it. There's great stories, great lessons in there for any baseball parent or baseball player. The book also has some great tactical advice, things like how to select a great instructor or how to select an agent or how to deal with politics in baseball and politics in high school baseball. But what I really loved about the book was it doesn't stop at the tactical. They offer some great thoughts on what I'm going to call the philosophical side of baseball, the baseball mentality. They even quote some great philosophers and some great psychologists to kind of add color and add depth to the mental side of the game and how important that is. And like I mentioned, they also tell some great stories from former major leaguers that I really enjoyed. Nate Headley is a baseball lifer. He is a former collegiate baseball player. He's a professional hitting coach. He's the owner of RBI Baseball and Softball in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he is a former assistant coach at the University of Tennessee. Bobby Bramhall is the president and founder of the Athlete Licensing Company. He is a former collegiate athletic director. He's a former professional baseball player, and oh, by the way, he was a former teammate of mine at Rice University. The book, Who's On First? Everything a Baseball Parent Needs to Know is available for purchase at barnesandnoble.com. You can also find all kinds of great information on the book on their website, whosonfirstbook.com. That's whosonfirstbook.com. Guys, I really enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. I hope everyone who listens will go check out the book. Again, who's on first? Everything a baseball parent needs to know. Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Bramhall and Nate Headley. Start off, welcome, fellas. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us, man. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having us, Clay. Yeah, I'm going to start with just a big congratulations because I went through the book and it's not just a pamphlet. I mean, this is a doorstop of a book. You guys put some time into it and I can imagine when it started, it had to be kind of an overwhelming process. So, there's a lot of success in just getting it done. When you first looked at this mountain, were you thinking that it might be unclimbable? Yeah, I'll tell you how it started. So at the end of my career, 2012, 2013, I met with one of my old friends in College Station who's an attorney and a big baseball fan. And we kind of put this outline together. Well, then I go to law school and kind of life changes a lot. And it wasn't until I got so close with Nate that it clicked of how do we actually execute on that outline and get this book done? It went from 
just an idea to we know how to do it and we know the people involved that are going to make it great. And so once you can see the vision, we were able to kind of move toward that. And after I finished school, I had some time to finally sit down and make it happen. So Nate joined in 2019 and and we wrote for three years almost. Yeah. So this is a book that's basically, I'll let you tell it, but an instruction manual for parents and mentors. It kind of walks you through step by step from five years old through the major leagues. Where did the idea come from? You mentioned it started in college. Did you just see a need in the market? You felt like parents or mentors were asking you for this? Where'd this come from? I would say that's probably kind of where I come in. Bob and I met years back where my wife and I Lori, actually got married at his farm out here in Knoxville. And we talked about it a little bit as far as, you know, the, the project he had talked about doing in the past. And it's basically what I do on a daily basis. I've owned a facility. I coached at the University of Tennessee for four years from 2007 through 2011. I actually ran a facility before then. And basically it was, hey, this is what I do on a daily basis. And this is the questions I get during lessons. This is the questions I get after lessons. And instead of me spending 20 minutes you know, with a client after working with this kid and saying, hey, this is how you navigate this process. Well, I've got a book you can get on the way out the door that's going to help you from, you know, T-ball through pro ball. So it really was kind of right up my alley as far as what I wanted to get out there. And then obviously with Bobby's expertise, um, we were able to, to add in some things that um, we feel like would be valuable from you know, literally T-ball to pro ball. Yeah, that's helpful to give a little background. Bobby, why don't you give a little of your baseball background and professional background? Kind of give us the Cliff Notes version. My career started with Clay Reichenbach at Rice University. That's right. And That's uh, right. Yeah. 2005, we came a game short from going to Omaha and um, ended up uh, growing up real fast at Rice under Coach Graham and the staff and had a great crew around us that made us successful and made us better people. Um, so we got to go to Omaha in 06, 07, and I signed as a junior with the Brewers. Played four years in their system and had double Tommy John. I had back-to-back surgeries. One didn't work very well and had to go get it redone. And so when I made my comeback, I had a lot of growing in that time to realize kind of what I wanted my life to look like. So when I came back, I had a really good year and realized there wasn't going to be an opportunity as uh, an older guy in pro ball. And so I bounced around with the Phillies, Nationals, Marlins, and then got to play my last year in Puerto Rico. And when I was in Puerto Rico, I started realizing I got to find a career. So law school was my next thing, giving me an opportunity. So I was studying for the LSAT in Puerto Rico and applying to all the schools, figuring out what the next step was. Well, when I went to law school at Tennessee, that's where I met up with Nate and we became fast friends with our backgrounds being the exact same. And when I was here, I learned to write. I mean, law school is basically reading and writing practice all day, every day for three years. And so I kind of believed in the process of, well, there's a lot of authors in the world that write great books. I have an expertise from baseball that I feel it's a story untold, and I wanted to tell that story for parents in a way that I could put it on paper based on what I learned in law school. So that's the that's the cliff notes of how this came to be from my baseball background. Yeah, you mentioned that 2005 year. One of the things that I think is unique to baseball players is our memory. I mean, to go back, I had Lance Berkman on, and he was quoting counts from high school and middle school, and you mentioned that being one out away. I can remember standing on third base in the eighth inning. We had the best pitcher in college baseball on the mound, Eddie Degerman, and we had two outs and two strikes on a guy named Brian Bogusevic. And if you can remember, Bobby, I was standing down there and I'm going, Eddie's going to strike this guy out. And here's how good my memory is of this moment. 
Brian Bogusevic, who was a first rounder for the Astros, was the seventh hitter in the lineup. And in my head, I was going eight nine one in the ninth, eight nine one in the ninth, and I was loving that because their two three four five was just murderers row at Tulane, and I can just remember that feeling. And it ended up not working out, but going. 891 in the ninth and we're in Omen Hall. But anyways, I, I hope to draw some of those stories out of you guys today. Before we get into the book, I, I want you to get into some stories. We'll start with either one of you guys, but what is it you love about the game of baseball? What made you fell in love with the game of baseball? Where did this all start for you? My story is a little bit different. Chase and I both grew up in a family that neither, you know, my parents, my dad didn't really play baseball at a high level. My mom didn't play softball. It was just something we both kind of fell in love with and that was you know our, our passion growing up and we were both pretty good obviously chase ended up being a little bit better with 10 years in the big leagues than me but he, he actually got this 6'3 230 jeans that, that i didn't get so but i ended up going to a junior college um, out of high school um, had a couple offers some d2 schools the juco i ended up going to i had three roommates arrested on eight felony counts of theft on our very first day of school. So I played Juco um, ball. I know that I know those guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. It was, it was different for me. I mean, I was, you know, junior class president graduated valedictorian was a 4.2 student. Like I did everything I was supposed to do to get where I was at. So it, it was one of those things that it came to an abrupt halt um, when I realized that I was not extremely excited to be in the place I was at. And, you know, once I decided to, to, leave the JUCO and I knew I still wanted to be in the game. You know, originally I wanted to go into sports agency and, you know, I just wanted to find a way to still impact the game and be a part of it. And 2005, when Chase was drafted, actually uh, Tennessee was in that 2005 college world series. Cause I remember Tulane was in it, which is who you guys discussed knocking you guys out. But I feel like the route I took and what happened to me at that JUCO level was something that I needed to, you know, get out there and let people know that, you know, however you decide to impact this game and, and if you truly have a passion for it, there's a lot of different ways to do it, whether it's on the field or off the field. And I've had the opportunity to coach in the SEC for four years and impact thousands and thousands of athletes individually now. And, and I just think that this was a this was an avenue for me to help out and continue to stay a part of the game that I, I truly love. Absolutely. Bobby, what, what made you fall in love with baseball? You know, my dad got to play at Texas A&M, and I think he was a little bit after your dad's heyday at Texas. And so we've talked about uh, my dad knows your dad's name very well. And it's interesting to hear the stories growing up in Texas of Texas versus Rice, Texas versus A&M. TCU came and Baylor came. And I mean, I grew up under those stories. And so from a young age, I was hearing those from my dad going to his alumni games at A&M, watching him take care of the A&M baseball team. And so Mark Johnson and Jim Lawler and those guys at A&M, I would go to their camps. And that's how I fell in love because I got good at a young age. We won the Little League State Championship whenever I was 12. And so that was a huge memory. So it became an identity where it was just, it was always first ahead of football and basketball. And so once it became a a reality in high school where I was playing on a big time tournament team, it was, this is my best best path to college. And this is my best path to succeeding and and believing in myself in something that um, I can be around teammates and really enjoy going forward. I didn't know how far it would take me, but as we know, we just keep growing at each step. You see, can you do it or not? And make that choice as you go. So baseball has always been part of my family. It's how my dad and I bonded. We'd go hit on Sunday afternoons, no matter how busy he was. And so looking back, that was really special uh, getting to be a part of that. Yeah, I love that you guys both 
mentioned family, Nate mentioning his brother and the bond they shared, and you mentioned your dad. Because when I drafted that question, I immediately thought of my dad, who you mentioned, who was a great ball player, better than me, an accomplished ball player. And I think we all kind of want to be like our dad. And I certainly did. And I just, I like you, Bobby, I loved practicing with him. I literally would be sitting in my driveway on the bucket of balls nearly every day waiting to go to the cage with my dad or throw on the side of the house when I slumped at college at Rice he'd stay after a a late game and throw BP to me in the cage and I think for me it is about those relationships whether they're with brothers or friends or dads and for me baseball was about that relationship with my dad and that's where I fell in love well let's get into a, a specific story What is the most fun? We'll start with you, Bobby, this time. What's the most fun or most memorable moment you had on a baseball field? All right, bringing up Texas A&M, growing up under my dad's wings there. He took care of the team for 31 years. And I think being able to face off against them to go to Omaha in 07 was huge. My dad lost 12 pounds that week. He had to ask permission from Bill Byrne, the athletic director, if he could wear rice gear and I'd say memorable. That was huge because it was opportunity to go back and play this hometown type game. I'd say the specific moment probably was being called in in Omaha in 2006 for my first appearance. We were playing Oregon State. We were down early. And the night before, I'd actually run sprints under a bridge in downtown Omaha because I hadn't pitched all week. And I said, if I get a chance, I got to be ready conditioning wise. And so I just was dying for that opportunity. And it actually came true. And so I'd say that was probably a huge moment for me, aside from all the wins and losses that we've all, you know, faced over the years. Those were huge. Nate, what's your favorite moment or your most memorable moment on a baseball field? So so you mentioned, you know, family and how important that is. And and for me, it was, you know, unfortunately not me necessarily being on the field. But in 2005, when Tennessee played Georgia Tech in the Super Regional at Georgia Tech, Chase fielded the the last out of the last inning. And, you know, I don't know if I've ever been so nervous to watch a throw across the diamond in my entire life, but he made the play through across. And literally as soon as he made the play, they dogpiled on the mound. And I'm on the very front row, like basically trying to get onto the field. And I'm just bawling my eyes out and just pure joy. And he'd like, as soon as he got up in the dog pile, like we made eye contact and he sprinted over and just gave me a big hug. And it, it was just, it was everything that I had, seen him work for for so long all come to fruition and you know for them to have a chance to go that 05 world series was one of the coolest coolest moments and to to see him do that and make the last play to finish the game out man i just i'll never forget it and how we felt in that moment like you mentioned nate your brother had an illustrious career where do you think these college memories rank with him bobby and i know a lot of professional baseball players and it seems like college has a special place in their heart. Do you think that's true for your brother who had such an accomplished career? Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you this. I mean, we, we go into this fairly in depth in the book, but college is pretty much the last time where you're you're playing for a team and you get to pro ball. And, and not that you don't want to win ball games, but bottom line is if you get a phone call that you're getting called up to the next level, then you're more ecstatic than you know, leaving a, a group of guys that you've been playing with for however long it's been and whatever level you've been at. But you don't have the same atmosphere in the dugout. You don't have the same goals as far as, you know, winning ball games day in and day out. If you go out and go four for four and, you know, single A and you, your team gets boat raced, it, 
you still leave the ballpark and you feel pretty good about yourself. Whereas in college, it's, it's not like that, man. If you guys, if you go out and have a great day and you guys, you know, lose a, a heartbreaker in the ninth, it's, it's not the same feeling. So I think college is the last opportunity, at least until you get to the big leagues, which, you know, obviously most people don't get that opportunity. College is the last place where you truly get to enjoy it, love it, and, and be in the trenches with, with your guys. So, Clay, the uh, conversation I had every single day in pro ball with Joe Savory is how great our days were at Rice. And it was interesting because we're both moving up the ladder in our respective organizations. And we would talk about how much fun this game was or how we would have invested more in this opportunity. It's interesting because that's where the team mattered. And that's where your best friends are in the dugout with you rather than this. Almost the competition is sitting next to you on the bench and you hope that they don't do well rather than let's all go win something together. So that's why college is so It becomes so a business. Yeah. Well, since you, I, you guys are making me, I've got to share a story because I think my favorite memory, Bobby, would be your freshman year, LSU 05 in the regional. And I think we still won probably 80% of our games that year and probably ranked in the top 15, but it was very clear that the Rice faithful was not pleased with our season, to say the least. It was the first time in maybe a decade we hadn't hosted a regional, and we heard about it from fans and from coaches. And we go into Baton Rouge as the two-seed, ostensibly the underdog. But I can just remember that feeling, that brotherhood you were talking about, that feeling of believing in one another. I'm getting chill bumps now just thinking about it. I can remember a specific ball player named Travis Reagan who was a good ball player but had a really rough year. He was hitting, I think, under 100, but he caught our Friday starter. And Reagan had an enormous game against LSU in the final, hit a big home run, an RBI double. And I remember somebody asking me about it in the post-game interview. And I can still remember just being confused by the question when they were going, how, could, how did Travis do this? He hasn't hit all year. And I was thinking, are you kidding me? Every one of us believed in Travis. Every one of us believed in every guy in that dugout. And if I could bottle up that feeling of just believing in one another and sell it, I certainly would. And I agree that there's something about that brotherhood and that kinship in college that that I'll never forget. I think that's my favorite memory on a baseball field. Well, let's get into the book itself. Early on, you point out something that I thought was pretty interesting. You were comparing baseball to other sports. And you say in baseball, this is a quote, Politics are equally as impactful as performance. Nate, why don't you take this question? Walk us through what you mean when you say that. We cover that a little bit, a couple different ways in the book. I mean, one of the biggest things that I've seen specifically in the market I'm in out here, you know, whether you're going to a, a public high school or a private high school, there's kids that lose opportunities and or gain opportunities based on what their parents are able to do to help a program. And, and, and I think that finding the way to navigate through that and understand that, you know, you're going to face barriers in your, gonna, your career. You're going to have hurdles, whether it be physical limitations or whether it be politics that go along with the power of the pen and who's writing the lineup and keeping players locked in on and controlling what they can control and making sure that, you know, they don't get overwhelmed by the obstacles of, of things that you know, they really have no control over is one of the most difficult parts of you know, what I do on a daily basis and you're trying to keep kids positive. And, and a lot of times, honestly, it's even more the parents than it is the kids. I mean, I'll have a kid come in and he's grinding his tail off and he's getting better day in and day out. The numbers are getting better. He's producing when he's getting his opportunities, but he's still got mom or dad in the ear just chirping nonstop like, well, he should be hitting in a three hole or he should be playing shortstop. And, 
you know, it's trying to to keep the parents going the right direction to not be another obstacle that their athlete has has to to deal with. And I think that was one of the biggest reasons we wrote this book is this book is going to help athletes, but it's going to help parents understand how to help their athletes more than anything. And Yeah, one of the things you pointed out in that section, I'm not sure who wrote that section, was the reason you're pointing out that politics are important is because the book is going to help you control what you can control and focusing on controlling what you can control. And one of the things I thought about throughout my career was the importance of things like time and place and need. Luck greatly favors the prepared and those that take chances and those that are talented and work hard. But luck plays a role. I played with some wildly talented players, both with and against, that didn't achieve what you thought they'd achieve, largely by matters that were outside of their control. Let's move on to another subject that you guys touch on a bit. You talk about natural ability and whether or not it's important and how important it is. I want you to elaborate. Baseball is one of the great skill sports. It takes a high degree of an ability. In my experience, it's sometimes difficult for young kids to enjoy without some natural hand-eye ability, some something like that. So spend some time talking about how important you think natural ability is. I'd say natural ability puts you on the diamond in a way that if you can run, throw, hit, and do all the the five major raw tools, you're going to be head and shoulders above the competition to begin. However, there's a lot of us that probably would not be on an NBA basketball court. We would not be on a college football field because we don't have those raw skills of a 4-3-40 or whatever it may be. So in baseball, you get to separate yourself based on skill. And you can cultivate those skills at an extremely early age. Like for me, I was a left-handed pitcher my whole life. So I could could always throw a baseball, but I was never the fastest. I never hit for power. And so you're able to develop some baseball skills that put you above the competition based on what you can do to produce numbers on the field. And we see that in the big leagues. Nate and I were talking this morning about the players that they can't even run in a straight line, but they're on a big league diamond because they know how to hit or they're a great pitcher, they've got a great pitch that nobody can touch. And so I think in baseball, it's unique. You don't have to always have the raw tools to be a great baseball player. So I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit. We were talking about this this morning with Bobby, and actually I had one of my hitters in um, last night. kid's name is Jack Alley. He's a Division One football prospect and baseball prospect. Um, he's an incredible athlete as far as he's a, he's a linebacker. He's extremely, extremely strong, strong. Dad was a power lifter, but he's an extremely stiff mover. And you see that a lot in a lot of the best power hitters in Major League Baseball. They're not tremendous athletes. They're tremendous hitters. But because mobility sometimes, if you're overly athletic, quick twitch guy, a lot of times you have a hard time with deceleration. And if you can't decelerate well, then your barrel tends to be in and out of the zone extremely quick. So you have less room for error. So hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do in any sport scientifically proven, but you don't have to be an elite level athlete to succeed at that level. So I think it kind of opens doors and opportunities for guys that, you know, really put in the work and grind to develop a specific skill set. And obviously with major league baseball, making the change to you know, the DH in both leagues. Now, you know, you don't necessarily have to be able to catch a cold to, to play at that level. So it's, it's pretty exciting. And I think it opens up some opportunities for, for athletes that wouldn't have it in other sports. Let's linger here for a minute. We may find some interesting space between us because one of my great pet peeves 
is the tendency for baseball players to deprioritize athletic ability or eating right or taking care of their body because of that high skill require that you guys are talking about i hear a lot of players and young people speaking about the need to focus on only baseball from a young age you just spoke about a guy who plays football and baseball in high school what do you tell a young person that comes up to you or even a talented high school kid and says they think they need to focus on baseball alone and play no other sports? I honestly prefer to coach athletes that have played multiple sports, not just from a toughness factor, but also from just learning how to move as an athlete. A lot of times you're going to get a carryover of football players in a baseball, and there's obviously a toughness that you get on the field, on the football field that you may not find on the diamond, and that typically shows up. And, and I don't really think it's the athlete's fault or the parent's fault. I mean, I think this kind of falls into so many high school coaches trying to make athletes specify what they're going to play going forward too early on. And then you lose that toughness. You lose that grit. You lose that fight to get on the field. You lose you know, the ability to, to, to never stop competing, whether it's the seventh inning, the ninth inning, whatever it is. So I feel like way too often now, and unfortunately, I think high school football coaches are sometimes an issue here where they're, Hey, you have to be at this, you have to be at that. And they, they pull away so much from the baseball side of it that, you know, these athletes don't have the opportunity and they're forced because they feel like if they don't make that decision early on in their career, that, you know, they're going to lose opportunities. And, and we actually, you know, interviewed a, a number of major league baseball players and, and coaches that also, you know, agree that, playing multiple sports for as long as possible is is the best way to go. I mean, if athletes are going to athlete, man, whether they're on the, the, the gridiron or they're on the they're diamond, man, athletes are going to athlete and, and, you know, learning how to allow those specific skill sets to, to show up on whatever field you're on is, is extremely important. And I wish that coaches would do a better job of communicating, you know, at the high school level and even before with you know, some of these athletes that are, doing it before they even get to, to high school. And I just wish that they would be on the same page as far as, hey, we can make this work. They've been doing this for a long, long time where players have played multiple sports and you don't necessarily have to specify. And I get it, man. You get to your junior year and if you're a way better baseball player than you are a football player, then guess what? That may make sense. But when you got a kid who's a freshman who's playing football, basketball, and baseball, my brother and I both, we played football, baseball, basketball until I stopped playing basketball my sophomore year. Chase played all the way through his senior year and I played football all the way through my senior year. So you can do it. I mean, it takes an athlete that's willing to grind and put in the work and, and make sure they make time for both. But it ultimately is, is it's boiling down to these high school coaches and them not allowing these kids the opportunity because they're so worried about, you know, winning football games at the high school level. And ultimately in the grand scheme of things, that's not what should be important. I also think it's a mistake and feel free to disagree with me, but to, be such a talented pitcher or be such a talented hitter like you spoke about that you think it's not important to develop your athletic ability. I mean, there are the CC Sabathias and the David Wells. I'm showing my age a bit here. But my point being, I just hate to see it where a young kid thinks because I'm talented at throwing a baseball or talented at hitting, I don't need to be an athlete. I'd agree with that. I think you have the athletes that don't understand the... 360 approach to being athletic translates to the baseball field. And so at 12 years old, they think they have to sit in the cage all day. And really the best thing they can be doing is playing on the soccer field and gaining that speed that separates them or the basketball court or whatever it may be, getting stronger in the weight room 
I definitely think you're right about that. Let's move on to another topic I think is fascinating. Bobby, I'll let you take this one. In Young Athletes, you speak about or write about in the book the importance of exposing yourself to a high level of competition, but not so high that the athlete is overmatched. You cite Malcolm Gladwell here in his small pond theory, which points out that talented individuals can lose confidence or motivation if they are exposed to intense competition that's beyond their immediate means or before they're prepared for it. Walk us through this delicate balance of challenging an athlete without killing a young person's confidence. Sure. And I'll use the education example that Malcolm Gladwell uses to begin. You have major Ivy League attendees that end up dipping out of their dream profession, whether it be you know law or, or science or some type of medical profession, because in your freshman chemistry class, you have every single top, I'm saying athlete in my head, but every single top schooler in the country. And so everybody around you is so smart that you feel, well, I'll never separate myself in this chemistry class. And so then they take another route and they go general studies or something else where they wanted to be a doctor. Well, if you go to a state school, well, the competition is probably a little more general than the Ivy League to start out. Yet you can rise up, you can learn chemistry, physics, organic, and all the things you need to go to medical school. Yet in medical school, you separate yourself with the information that you've already learned to become a great doctor specifically or profession of what you're looking to do. And so the same thing translates to the sports facility um, arena where you have too great a competition early doesn't allow you to learn on the field. I remember at Rice, I was overwhelmed my freshman year. I had some bummer things happen early. And then I should have been at a place where I was able to play at a lower level, get a lot of reps and then move. Right. And that's why JUCO is so important. You get a lot of reps early and you move to a big time school and you fit right in. And I think what happens is if you get a too big of a pond early, you get gobbled up by the competition and you're out. You never had a chance to grow. But if you are able to develop in a small pond and then hit those streaks where you're going to learn real quick and you're going to jump, then you're able to jump on your own time and you may end up in the big leagues, right? But if you've already had a chance to play at a huge university and you didn't even make the team, we never had a chance to throw 90 innings at a school that you could. And then all of a sudden you're out of the game. So I'm going to let Nate talk to Bryce Brents here from Middle Tennessee State. I mean, at a big time school, he may not have had the success he had, but now he is. So I had an athlete who was was a multi-sport athlete. He was a quarterback in high school and he was an outfielder. When I got him, he was a right fielder. His dad actually played uh, quarterback at Mississippi State. Super athletic kid. The ball came out of his hand different. The ball came off his bat different. But, I mean, he was hitting in the eight hole for his high school team and playing right field. And, you know, over the, the, the course of years, he was the the grinder that was constantly in the tunnel. You know, I had to kick him out of my facility at night and got, ended up getting to the point where I just gave him a key and said, hey, here's how you lock up and turn the lights off. He had a really, really good sophomore year and then kind of broke out his junior year. We were actually down in Jupiter and I think it was the summer of his junior year. We were down there and, you know, he had a really good tournament down there. MTSU decides they want to bring him in on a visit. And I told Brent, I was like, hey, man, just go on your visit. Whatever you do, don't commit. And Brent, being Brent, he goes on his visit on his way back 30 minutes on his on, onto his drive back home. He calls me. He's like, hey, man, I committed MTSU. And I'm like, well, congrats, congratulations. You're an idiot. <laughs> and, and long story short, you know. We got a phone call from Tennessee a couple weeks later. They had interest in him. And, you know, I had to tell Rod Delmonico at the time. I was like, hey, man, he's committed to UT. He's committed to Coach Pete. He's given him his word. I'm not going to tell a kid to back out of that. And, and 
thankfully for Bryce, he you know decided to honor his commitment. He went there and he broke every single offensive record. He's actually in their Hall of Fame now and kid made it to the big leagues. But if Brancy goes to to UT, there's a chance that he gets lost in the mix. And really, that was a perfect fit um, for him to end up at MTSU. And you know, he actually went down there was their Friday night guy. I think finding the right fit and understanding, you know, are you a player that can sit for a year or two, develop and come in and go off for one year or two years and still get to where you want? Or are you a guy that needs to come in, get at bats right away and, and be that big fish in a small pond versus being a big fish in a big pond? And I think it makes a big difference. Um, and each each individual athlete needs to understand what role they, what route they need to take. I want to linger on this delicate balance here, and I want to I want to tell you a brief story and get you to comment on it. So, when I was in college, I had a friend that had an opportunity, a scholarship offer from a top tier baseball program, call it the University of Tennessee, in your example, and he had offers from smaller schools, and he chose the smaller school over one of the best programs in the country. And when I asked him about it, he cited exactly what you're talking about. He said, "Well, Clay, I just." I'm worried about not getting playing time there. I think I'll have to compete against some guys that that may play against me. And I can still remember being so confused with his response. I thought, what the hell are you talking about? Like for me, the defending national champions offered me a scholarship. I'm going to go play and I'm going to start. And I wasn't a top line recruit, but my mentality, that just confused me a bit. And it still confuses me a bit. I hear what you're saying but I wonder how to balance that with this confidence that we're going to get into later that some of the major leaguers shared some great stories about. Am, am I wrong there to go to my friend and say, what the hell are you talking about? Go play for that big time school and compete. Am I in the wrong there or sh- should he say, no, he made the right decision? I'd say the cream rises. And so I think it really matters what you do when you get there. And you do have to fail and you have to understand how to get on the field and how to separate yourself. But I would say there is that fine line of sometimes it doesn't work out that way and you would have had a chance to rise another place. Everybody probably is different case by case. Could not agree more. I mean, that just depends on each individual athlete. I've got a shortstop that plays for our 16U team now that's got multiple mid-major Division One offers that, I mean, it's, it's hard to turn down. I mean, he's basically fully boated, which you rarely see. And he's an undersized athlete. Um, kid wants to play at the University of Tennessee or he wants to play at it. Uh, he wants to play in the SEC and <clears throat> he hasn't committed to any of these schools yet because specifically he's trying to hold out, you know, to play for a power five. And, you know, he's also that athlete that there's no question in my mind that if he ends up at one of these SEC schools, he's going to find his way on the field because that's how he grinds. But I also have guys that I'll tell you right now that mentally that would be a tough transition for them because they're not used to sitting on the bench. They're not used to grinding. As an undersized athlete that his entire life, you know, this kid's been told you can't do it. You can't do it. And and honest to God, the kid goes to the gym at 6 a.m. before high school every single day and he's he's broken out and he's become a dude now and he's getting opportunities that, you know, he never thought he'd get. But that kid, I don't care where he goes. He's going to play. He's going to play right away and he's going to excel at a high level. But there are kids that, you know, have been – for lack of a better term, silver silver spoon fed their entire career. And, you know, if they get to a big time program and they're not, they're not playing right away, they leave. They're gone. I mean, I, I had coaching when I was coaching at the University of Tennessee, we saw it all the time. You know, we get kids from, you know, an East Cobb program that they were the best at every ever level that they played at. And then they get there and they're like, well, there's like 17 more of me. And then they start to lose the desire to get better. They start to lose the passion to play the game. 
and they get weeded out and they end up, you know, either leaving the game or going and play somewhere else, which is fine. I mean, everybody's got that route, but I think understanding the athlete and how they work mentally and how, what they're willing to do to be able to bet on themselves. You know, there's guys that I feel like, you know, I'm going to tell them, Hey man, you know, if that's what you want to do, stick it out and then go do that. But then there's guys that, you know, I'm going to honestly tell them, like, hey, you're probably better off to go to a mid-major where you're going to be on the field right away. And if ultimately your your goal is to play Major League Baseball and you're that dude, they're going to find you. It doesn't matter where you go, but it, that that's going to differ from athlete to athlete. And I, but I understand 100% what you're saying. Like, everybody wants to play for the best of the best. I mean, Tennessee's the number one school in the country right now, and everybody wants to play for Tennessee. But it's cyclical, man. It's really important to make sure you choose the right path and you choose the right pond that you belong in. That sounds like a dig at our owls, Bobby. I don't know, but <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's the reason I think we're going to get kind of go away and come back to mentality a little bit. But the reason I think it's such an interesting discussion is because it's such a delicate balance. I call it internal arrogance. It, my internal arrogance is what allowed me who wasn't maybe as gifted to start at the number one program in the country at the time but i totally hear that if i go there and don't get those reps well it may limit my pro prospects and what i'm hearing from you nate is find good mentors find good coaches because sometimes someone with internal arrogance like me is going to make a bad decision for my future and so but so let's move on to those good mentors and those good coaches i think that's a great transition we spent a lot of time on this platform talking about great coaching. We've spent a lot of time talking about flawed motivation methods and coaching. Also, what makes a great baseball coach? I think ultimately that boils down to a coach understanding his athletes. I think that any coach that tries to coach every single athlete the exact same way, that's where ultimately the biggest failure is. You know, you got kids that need a pat on the butt, you got you got kids that need a kick on the butt and truly understanding each individual athlete. And I understand that, you know, the highest level when you're, or if you're coaching power five baseball and you have 36 guys on a roster, it's hard to know every single kid inside and out, but understanding what motivates them and understanding how you're going to get the very best out of them and not coaching every single kid the exact same way ultimately is the, is the biggest thing that I've learned over the course of my career, man. I, I've, when I actually got done coaching in the SEC, I coached a, I don't know how they do it, but a nationally ranked 9U team. And I'm looking at myself like, what am I getting myself into right now? I just got done coaching the SEC, and now I'm <laughs> coaching kids that are trying to learn how to develop the most basic mechanics in the game. And it was honestly one of the best things I've ever done. I can say that I've truly coached almost every single level of the game. And I think that has been as valuable to me as anything. Obviously, the skill acquisition and learning the mechanics of, of a swing and all that stuff's important. But being able to be on the field coach and hold a kid accountable without putting them to where you're not going to get anything out of them going forward because you, you've got onto them so bad that that's all they can think about. But just understanding how each, indivi each individual athlete works and, and functions and being able to cater to that specific athlete the best you can, but still maintaining a program in which you're, everyone is holding each other accountable. Bobby, Boy, when you, I'll tell you. let me let me let me ask you something. You can go where you're going to go. When you think back throughout your career from Little League to the professional ranks and you think about great coaches that impacted you the most, Bobby, what is it that they did? Why do you think they stick out in your mind? 
for me, it's that they let me be who I was. So I think one of the most special things about our time at Rice is those coaches, they told you what the problem was and you had to find the solution. There was nobody telling you how to fix it. And if you didn't fix it, you weren't on the team or you weren't going to play. And so we had the freedom to say, I have to find my own answer that makes me the best. Yet you have the drivers of the coaches pushing you there. I think one of the most special things that Coach Graham did is he let you call your own game on the mound. And I think these days you have the wristbands and everybody's giving signals from the dugout pitch to pitch. I think that's hurting the game because it's not allowing the athlete to figure out what works for them and is their bread and butter. So I would say it's the coaches along the way that have known how to do it. They show you the problem and then you find the solution while they kind of push you that way. Let's get into something that I was immediately impressed by in your book, and that is that there's all this great tactical advice, how to pick an agent, how to pick an instructor, but you didn't stop there. You dive into the mental aspects of success as much as the tactical aspects. You write about failure and why it's important. You write about cherishing the journey the entire way. You write about what success is, what is psychological safety amongst teams. Somebody within the two of you is clearly a psychology fan. I mean, you're quoting people like Adam Grant and Angela Duckworth and Nassim Taleb. You even quote Seneca, which I'm impressed with. This is all right up my alley. Speak about where this realization came from that a big part of this book had to speak about the mental side of the game. My whole life, I feel that my mental side has been my strongest aspect. And so the more that I could pull from those in tough times or good times, allowed me to understand there were people before me that have overcome or there were people before me that have achieved at a very high level and history repeats itself. And so I think what I did is I tried to find those great thinkers and teachers to show the way in my life. And I think in the book, you pull those quotes out and you see that Seneca in early years and years ago knew exactly how to do things and not much has changed other than the culture that we live in. So it's exciting to know that like there are people you can always pull from and find your way and find inspiration from as you're growing in a certain area, whether it's baseball or something completely different. One of the things I want you guys to elaborate, speaking about mentality, is some of these stories that the major leaguers shared. Joe Savory shared this great anecdote about a teammate telling him, hey, pay attention to how you jog in from the bullpen. Pay attention to your body language because that says something to your competitors. Matt Langwell shared this great story about what I call internal arrogance, a coach basically telling him, you're better than everyone in this league and you're not acting like it. Talk about those type of stories. Why that mentality? How you walk on a baseball field, how you dress, how you think about yourself is so tremendously important. Bottom line, each individual athlete kind of needs to learn how to have that internal arrogance and confidence about themselves, but not just that, but understand how to. I actually got this quote from Chris Burke when I was coaching at Tennessee. He came and spoke to us, and he is arguably the most famous home run in, in playoff baseball history. I and stayed Burke up said, for it. Yeah, yeah, and and it was we were actually interviewing. We were talking to him about that at bat, and and you know how he was able to come you know come in and perform and, and come through in such a big situation. And he said ultimately, it's always about you know living in the moment, not for the moment. And that's one thing that we talk about our hitter, hitters with consistently is that. You know, when you're lasting in the ball game, you've got a runner on second base, two outs. You can't worry about it. you can't worry about if you get a hit or not. 
you can't be thinking about if I get a hit here, yeah, we're going to win the game. Or, hey, if I don't get hit a hit here, we're going to lose the game. You have to be so locked into everything that you put into that point in time has made you good enough to be successful here. And you have to be so locked into what your plan is and you have to sell out on that. You get a knock and you're successful. Great. And if you don't, you, you at least put yourself in an opportunity to be successful. But if you're so worried about the external pressures of that situation, that at bat, then the game's too big for you. You, you have got to believe in what you put in and you have to sell out. I mean, once you get in the box, we talk about this all the time with our hitters. Like when you go into a game, you're not changing what you're doing mechanically. You, you've got your weapon and your weapon is all you got. You know, if you're if you're a, a soldier and you're going off to war, you're not going to go in and pick out a new a new gun that you've never shot before. You're going to take the one that's been battle tested. You know how to clean, you know how to shoot, and you know, every last in and out about it. You, your weapon is your weapon when you step in that box and when you step on that mound and you have to believe in that pitch or you have to believe in that approach. And if you don't, you're going to fail a whole heck of a lot more. If you can live in that moment and just stay locked in and believe in what you've done and truly buy into your approach and not be halfway in or halfway out that's when you're going to have an opportunity to be successful more often than not. I love where you're going. I had a head coach from the University of Texas on David Pierce, who Bobby and I played for, who I can't confirm or deny that Bobby shoved ice cream in his face at one point in the career. Did that happen, Bobby? Do you want to confirm or deny that? Um, respectful to Coach Pierce, it did happen. And, um, <laughs> I, I apologize, and he's forgiven me. So well, we'll move on. One. That's one of my friend's favorite stories, though. That's can confirm. Well, on that on that podcast with David Pierce, he said, Clay, we spend probably 50% of our time in practice on techniques and getting better and 50% of our time talking about what he called being big in the box, which is exactly what you were talking about, Nate. They call it to Texas. Be big in the box. Have confidence in the box. You have that internal arrogance because if you step up against you know one of the nation's best pitchers, and you're telling yourself that this guy's better than you, guess what? It's over with. I used to think that about Houston Street, again, dating myself a bit, but we would sit there in the dugout and be like, I don't need you to sit here and tell me how good this guy is. We're past that. Like we're done with the scouting report. Right now, I'm talking about in my head how I'm better than him, which obviously wasn't the case. But if I didn't figure out a way to convince myself of that, I guarantee you I didn't have a chance in hell. We've got some time, so let's do something which I think is really interesting, Bobby. I want you to share with the audience, the realities of transitioning from a top-tier college baseball program to the minor leagues, because I thought this was a really interesting part of the book. I don't think most fans understand the realities of the minor leagues. I I don't think they understand going from playing in front of five to 10,000 fans for most games to going to rookie ball. So talk to us a little bit, maybe share a couple of stories about your experience transitioning from going to Omaha with the Rice Owls to being on a bus in, in rookie ball. And I'll tell this to say that there's a lot from my career that I wanted to say in this book. And when we molded it, I still wanted to keep the core of what I wanted to share. And so I listened to the Tim Ferriss show, who you've probably listened to a lot. And the Tim Ferriss show, he continually says, if it hurts more to keep it in and you constantly feel that, you have got to write it down. And so one of my whys for writing this book is it was one of these stories that I wanted to tell and I wanted to share And I always thought about it. I said, I've got to tell this some way one day and write it down. So in my opinion, it was how do you share this minor league aspect that's so different from baseball across the board for anybody that has grown up under it and didn't have the chance to play pro ball. So funny story, my first road trip in pro ball, I was in Helena, Montana, and we had a gravel dirt parking lot. So I was, you know, right off the World Series, kind of excited about this new opportunity and half of my bag had mesh. 
and half of it was just a normal duffel bag. So I put the clean clothes next to the bus and I was excited for my first road trip. And I went into the locker room and packed up my baseball stuff. And I came out and my Dominican teammate, who really didn't know how to drive a car very well, had a rental car or something. And he backed over my bag and drug it like 100 yards down the gravel parking lot. It was just my first wake up to pro ball. Like nobody cares about you. Nobody cares that, you know, you were in Omaha or where you were before. And so I had to spend the first night washing clothes at the laundromat at this terrible hotel. Well, to go on, pro ball as a whole is, you know, super behind the times in the way that a professional is treated. Each level, you're staying in rough hotels, you're being paid nothing, and you're really working towards that day that you get a call up or a promotion or whatever it may be. And I think people don't understand how the love of the game is still there between the lines, but the lifestyle changes so much. It's not your professional athlete. It's you're way less respected than you ever were. You're a number on a page and you're around a lot of folks that maybe wouldn't have made your college team, yet they have one raw uh, skill or tool that is going to take them to the next level that some pro scout has you know, evaluated and believes in. And so it's a different type of game in professional baseball than this team aspect that really grows and you're kind of the same goal together. You're actually an individual and you're going through the pro circuit trying to figure out how do I make it with one thing that I might do well in an entire lifestyle that really hasn't fit anything I've ever lived in. Um, there's no sport like it because you go to football and there's only from college football to the NFL where even if you're on the scout team or the, the uh, practice squad, you're making a decent living and you're around the same guys that are getting the equipment and the money and the things that's actually promoting their lifestyle as a professional athlete. Yeah, one of the things I've tried to articulate to people is that uniqueness of baseball that you just spoke to. Nate spoke earlier about he was an academic scholar, and we had a lot of those guys. We had guys that were pre-med. We had 3.8, 4.0 GPAs. We had economic majors, poli-sci majors that were also all Americans on the baseball field. And then they go into rookie bar, a ball, and you have guys that they really can't relate to that, you know, want to go out at night or play cards on the bus, but they're not really thinking about what's going on in the world. They're not having conversations about Seneca or Malcolm Gladwell. And the challenge is not just performing on the field. It is dealing with that and going, where am I in life? This is, you know, I don't relate to these guys. I'm on a bus for eight hours at a time, and I am more than this. I am a, a graduate from Rice University or the University of Tennessee or wherever you went. And that is a really unique challenge that I thought you guys did a very good job of, of pointing out. But go ahead, Nate. You had something. I was just kind of laughing because Chase always, you know, when he was, he was fortunate to get through the minor leagues fairly quickly compared to most, but we would have conversations all the time when he was on the road or, you know, get back from a road trip. And he's like, dude, I feel like I'm getting dumber every day. I need to find a way to challenge myself, whether it's doing Sudoku or it's, you know, reading a book or whatever it is. It's just Chase also graduated valedictorian. He was an extremely intelligent kid, all academic, all American, but it was, you're so caught up into making it to that next level that trying to find a way to continue to make yourself better can be extremely, extremely difficult finding something you know to to tie yourself to other than just the game of baseball I think is extremely important for a lot of these athletes I think that you know one thing I've had an opportunity to, to work with a lot of, of pro ball guys that have been in different minor league organizations and you know one of the best things that I've seen for a lot of my guys is they actually find a, a steady girlfriend 
you know, they find someone that they can actually talk to on a daily basis with something other than baseball, you know, that, you know, when Chase was in the big leagues, when we talked on the phone, like rarely did we talk baseball. That's the last thing I wanted to be. I wanted to be an outlet where he could just talk to a, a brother or a family member and instead of, Hey man, you're hitting a buck 67 a month and a half in the season. You're getting booed at Yankee stadium by your own fans. Like the game wasn't fun for him at that point in time. And the last thing I needed to do was tell him that, you know, his path wasn't good or, you know, his timing mechanism was late or whatever it was. Like if he asked me about it, we would talk. But, you know, I think a lot of these guys need someone to be able to lean on and, and, and have that that relationship outside of baseball, because when that becomes who you are and that's it, man, you get you get lost and you, you start to lose who you are as a human being. And I think that's unfortunate that, you know, minor league baseball doesn't do a better job in nurturing that in a manner in which, you know, they, they allow them to, to actually be a human being as opposed to another number in their system. And I'll expand on two things there. So if you get a chance to pick up the book. The minor league hardships section is kind of what we're most proud of, because for me, it was my why. It was what is it that you can take from law school and from your experience and explain to the general public, why is it this way? How is it legally allowed to be this way? And then what could change to make it better? And we're already seeing some of the changes happen because of the lawsuits that are happening against Major League Baseball from these former players. For those that don't know, there was a California case decided last month where they were going to have to back pay players that played in the California leagues. And so they're going to get money years later because they're realizing they were employees and they do deserve fair pay under fair labor standards and things like that. So a lot of it is it needs to be shared and people just need to know about it. So there's not this romance around it where the legislature is not being called to act and make things like every other sport has to. The other thing I want to share is the reason we put this in the book is George Strait has sung a cover song by a guy named Jesse Winchester for years. It's called A Showman's Life. And it's a great song, but it's about entertainers on the road. And we always thought it was country music stars when he's singing it. But it's the exact song that I got to live. It's a showman's life is a smoky bar and a fevered chase of a tiny star. It's a hotel room and a lonely wife. From what I've seen of a showman's life, nobody told me about this part. And so my whole life was so much fun in baseball all the way through Rice. And then all of a sudden you get there and all you can say is, man, nobody told me about this part. And so I thought that song, if you ever get a chance to just YouTube it, that George Strait cover song is just incredible because of the way um, it accurately describes entertainers, whether it's a baseball entertainer or a, a singing entertainer, a concert guy. That's beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well, guys, let's end here. You've already talked a little bit about your why Beyond the tactical advice, or maybe it is the tactical advice, share the the one or two pillars that if there's only that thing that a parent or a mentor or player takes away from this book, what do you want them to take away? I think for me, the biggest thing is that everybody's everybody's avenue is going to be different. Everybody's career is going to be different, whether you develop early at a young age, whether you work your tail off to open up opportunities that you wouldn't have had otherwise. There's no, there's no book for this. Our book is a guideline to keep you going the right direction, but success is not a, it's not a straight line. There's failure along the way. There's going to be ups, downs, ins, outs. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be, you know, whatever it is that, that keeps you from getting where you want to, or your slows you down from getting to where you want to. Like you have to understand that nobody's had this, picture perfect ride to get there getting to the big leagues is or whatever level you play at 
that's your route. That's your story. That's your avenue. But like, enjoy that process of it. And I think so many parents, you know, are so worried about you know their kids' success and 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 how far they make it and where they play at. Like, let them put in the work. Let them experiment. Let them understand this is part of life. This your baseball career is very similar to to your career as far as whatever you end up doing for the rest of your life. Like, no one's just going to open this door. You're going to walk through and get there. There's going to be obstacles and, you know, allowing a kid to enjoy the process of it instead of, you know, hey, this is where we're going to get there. And this is where we're going to get to. And this is how we're going to get there. That doesn't happen like that. And if they don't understand that, their career is going to end a lot earlier than it would if they just say, hey, I'm going to stay the course, control what I can control. Wherever I get to is where I get to. But along the way, I'm going to enjoy the ride. Yeah, that's beautiful, awesome. Nate. That's I've had major leaguers I mean, they're saying the same thing is they wish they would enjoy the ride enjoy the journey because the accomplishment is not the story what about you bobby what do you hope a parent a mentor a, a player takes away from this book i'll echo everything nate just said but i'll also say that unwinding the baseball identity is really tough for the athlete so as the parents raise this athlete in sports and give them all their opportunities that they can become better the minute it ends they're going to be somebody that they didn't expect to be when it started. And so they're going to have to understand how to move on and what it takes to take those lessons and opportunities and successes into the next phase of their life. Alex Rodriguez talked about it, and we quoted it in the book. He says that the athlete dies two deaths. One is the death of their career, and then the actual physical death that we all face. And so it's interesting because you don't realize you're going to die after this baseball thing is over, and you're going to have to move on to something else. And it's a tough identity to let go. There's a lot of unpacking and unwinding. One of my friends, Parker Dalton, who played at Texas A&M, said, it's taken me years to unpack. You just have to unpack and unpack everything that went into that final success, going to Omaha or whatever it took to achieve a certain level in your career of the years and years it took to get there. And I think that that's super important to understand is the unpacking. So that's, that's probably the biggest thing for me for parents to understand. What I love about what you just said is I tell people all the time that this podcast isn't about sports, it's about life. And the reason I think sport is so neat is it's this great metaphor for life. So your quote about Alex Rodriguez, that's been true for me in business. That's true for anyone. If you develop an identity around what you do or around accomplishment, it typically ends bad. And that's why I love sport is it can articulate these points in such beautiful anecdotes that apply anywhere in life. You don't have to be an athlete to hear that quote and have it make sense for you. Well, guys, this is this has been great. The book is Who's On First? Everything a Baseball Parent Needs to Know. I appreciate you doing this. This has been fun. Like I said, it feels like home back talking baseball. So appreciate it, guys. Clay, thank you so much, man. We truly appreciate the opportunity and you taking time. Love seeing you, Clay, and it's always good to reconnect, man. Thanks, guys. Yeah.